We are going to be getting into Romans, Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 15 this morning. Now, as I, if you're here last Sunday, you would, maybe this will be a reminder, I guess. I emphasized that all of Romans chapters 9 through 11 is a really long answer from Paul to this question, why are so many Gentiles, that is people that aren't Jews, why are so many Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus and so many Jews aren't? The background context is that Gentiles are receiving Jesus as their Messiah like a fire hose, just in droves. But the Jewish people, it's more like a drip. Which is crazy when you consider the background context that the Jewish people were the very ones whose very existence, identity, purpose, culture, all centered around the arrival, the waiting, the longing for of the Messiah. And the Gentiles weren't even looking for him. Most of them haven't even heard about the promised Messiah yet. And yet they are discovering in Jesus the Messiah. Now using the analogy of Jesus being our treasure or the treasure, the Jews, they were given a map. We all like the story of the classic treasure hunt and the treasure map, right? They were given the map so that they would know what to look for and what to labor for and where to journey towards this Messiah that was promised. And yet when Jesus came along, they rejected Jesus as the treasure, as the Messiah, even though they are the very ones that know to look, know what to look for, and have been longing generation after generation for Jesus. And so Paul asks, and then he answers the question, was the map wrong? Was what they were told through the prophets in the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, was what they were told wrong? Could they rely on this map? And so Paul, using the map itself, the God-written map of the Old Testament, shows them how the map is fine, but rather their interpretation of the map is all wrong. To put it simply, they're, kind of, they're holding it upside down. And Paul says, here, let me show you. So we're going to look at verses 6 through 15 of Romans chapter 9. I'll read it aloud. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children. But it is the children of the promise regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, he continues, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. What what Paul is writing to the church in Rome that's comprised of Jews and Gentiles, he's saying the first mistake that Jewish, Jewish people of Paul's day were making is that they were believing that they would receive the treasure of the Messiah as an automatic inheritance. That just because they were descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's family, it would just kind of come automatically to them. It was, after all, their birthright. It didn't even dawn on them that they would ever miss out on recognizing when the Messiah had come. But Paul reminds them that not all descendants of Abraham were given the promise. It wasn't even Abraham's firstborn son, Ishmael, but rather Isaac, who received the inheritance of the promise. If you remember back to the events recorded in Genesis, you will remember that God told Abraham when he was 75 years old to leave the land of his father and go to a new land that he would give him and that he would become the father of a great nation, God promised him. And so Abraham obeyed and he went with his wife Sarah and they set out. And however, despite trying for many years, they could not conceive a child. And out of desperation and frustration, Sarah asked Abraham to sleep with her servant, the Egyptian, Hagar. And Hagar gave birth to Ishmael when Abraham was 86 years old. Thirteen years later, God would meet with Abraham and expand his promise to Abraham, saying, you will not just be the father of a great nation. No, you will be now the father of many nations. And that's why God changed Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham, meaning father to father of many. Among other things, this expanded covenant that was given to Abraham uh, was the addition of circumcision, along with the promise that Sarah would have a child, and Abraham was to name this child Isaac, and Isaac would be the one that would be blessed with the promise or covenant of Abraham. And even still, Abraham laughs at the idea of Sarah having a child at age 90. And he tries to reason with God and says, Can you not work with Ishmael? But the Lord confirms again to Abraham, It will be Sarah. Sarah will have a child. And sure enough, a year later, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. God's miraculous, powerful hand. Now, why does Paul recall this moment of Jewish history for the Jews of his day? It is to inform them that their very existence and identity comes from the miraculous, powerful hand of God and God alone. And in addition to that, he has exercised his right to narrow or expand the promise of God through Abraham, however he wants. And in the case of Isaac and Ishmael, he narrowed it to Isaac over Ishmael. And furthermore, it's never been the natural children of Abraham that carry the promise, but rather those 
born by the miraculous power of God, that no man may boast, but rather instead look to God and give him the praise or give him the boasting for what he has done. You see, the Jews of Paul's day were reading a map, were reading the map as though to say they would be born into the kingdom of God, heaven on earth, simply by birthright. They could never, it never even entered their mind that they could be excluded from that. But Paul preaches, it has never been a matter of birthright. It has never been a natural or automatic thing. It has always been as the result of the supernatural, miraculous gift of God to be a part of God's family. Now, maybe some Jews at this point, they're buying the argument. They're like, yeah, I could see that. Maybe the promise isn't just for those that are naturally born into Jewish families. But surely the Jewish family or the Jewish person must come more naturally to the faith because they've spent their their life being raised in the law, knowing God's definition of right and wrong and how to live. They, They of anyone would know how to spot the king of righteousness first. They've been trained in it. And and after all, how could God not see their life, all of their good works that they've done, living by the law, especially compared to those Gentiles? And to that, Paul just moves one generation down the line in his argument. He moves down to Jacob and Esau, the twin brothers. Jacob and Esau, Jacob was uh, the youngest, Now, the Jew would normally expect that Esau would be the recipient of the family blessing or inheritance or riches for that promise to continue through the firstborn son, as was custom or tradition. But God chose Jacob, the younger one, even before the boys were born, before either of them had the chance to prove by their works, by their adherence to the law, how deserving or undeserving they might be to be the carrier of the promise, the blessing of the covenant. Why did God do this? Why does Paul recall these dynamics and these realities in their history? Well, simply to prove that their works will not save them. They might have been brought up in the law. They might follow it better than anyone else. But that is not what saves you. Let's just pause for a moment. Could it be that you might live a really good life in relation to your coworkers, your family members, your friends, your neighbors, and yet you are no closer to receiving the promise of God, the hope of salvation, than the most evil and wicked person in your world? Perhaps you today are more like the Jew than the Gentile. Perhaps today you honestly think that good people go to heaven. Paul says no. He brings home one of the great points of this section of Scripture, that we are not saved by our birthright, and we are not saved by how good we are, 
We are saved by God's mercy and compassion. It is not our goodness. It is faith in His goodness. And for the Jew, those are two really hard pills to swallow. But only because they've been reading the Scriptures incorrectly, interpreting the map, holding the map the wrong way, puffing up their status and their good works instead of puffing up God and His goodness and greatness. And Paul is saying to the Jew, it's been there all along. This is nothing new, especially to God's people. If you look carefully through our own lineage, our own family, you will see God's miraculous saving power and how He works in saving us. If anyone thinks they deserve salvation, they are owed salvation. They have earned salvation. They are farther away from receiving the treasure of Christ than the most undeserving and lawless man out there. And that is why so many Jews didn't come to to faith in Christ. And to this day, many still have not. Paul's actually going to continue why they still have not in in the weeks in the text to come. But I need to pause here for a moment and backtrack and qualify some things. It is common to read this text and think that because Ishmael and Esau didn't receive the promise that that means that God chose both men and their descendants to go to hell. I mean, after all, didn't we read that God loved Jacob and hated Esau? What other conclusion are we to come to? But as I shared last week, this use of love and hate is not the emotional sense. It's the hyperbolic use of love and hate, of which we don't have a contemporary or a modern-day context to understand it. But we read through Scripture its use. And it is related to this idea of election, that you can only choose one for the office, so you choose one over the other. Just as though, just as though you can only choose one Lord of your life. If you choose to put God as the Lord of your life and you come second, that is equated by biblical thinking in this context to say, I love God and I, and I hate myself. If you choose to... Um, Love God over your family. Put God first over your family. Using this language, you are loving God and hating your family. This is the hyperbolic use of love and hate. And it's tempting to think that if God chose or loved Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau, then he must really hate Ishmael and Esau, and through them, even their descendants. But is that line of thinking right? No, it's not. Go back and read Genesis. You'll see that God was especially merciful to Ishmael and his mother. Did you know that Ishmael would become the father of 12 tribes as well? They're called the 12 princes. Ishmael is actually the father of modern-day Arabs. Did you know that Muhammad 
claimed to be a descendant of Ishmael? Did you know that the founder of the Baha'i faith claimed to be the descendant of Abraham's second wife, Keturah? Did you know that Esau would become the father of the Edomites? And many speculate on his descendants. We don't really know with certainty. But we know that at a bare minimum level through DNA and intermarrying, many of today's populations could trace their lineage back to Esau. Maybe you, maybe me. And I share all of that to say, when God chooses Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau, it isn't to say that he is choosing who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. He is simply choosing who would be the carrier of the promise. Who would be the keeper of the map? Who would become pregnant with the Messiah? And while being carriers of the treasure map clearly went to the Jewish head in the days of Jesus, ironically, wonderfully, the treasure, the promise that is the Messiah they carried was in fact a treasure for all nations. The Abrahamic covenant or promise all the way back to its origin is I will bless you to be a blessing unto the nations. Praise God that the descendants of Ishmael and Esau are coming to faith in Christ right up into this present day. You know, we can read actually regularly testimonies of Arab Muslims in particular having revelations of Jesus and coming to faith. Receiving the promise that was denied their forefather thousands of years prior. In fact, I'll read an excerpt from a post. Just back from November, November 10th by Michael Lacona. It says, he, said, he wrote this. Uh, God is working in the midst of war. This news coming out of Palestine from underground Christian ministries, and here's what they reported. Over the past two days, we have ministered to hundreds of fathers who have lost most, if not all, of their children in the war. As we moved these men to safety, we fed them, washed their clothes, and began to read the Bible to them sharing the way of peace through Jesus. Then a big miracle happened. Last night, Jesus appeared to more than 200 of them in their dreams. And they have come back to us to learn more from God's word and are asking how to follow Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Here's the thing. Some of us read Romans 9 and come to the conclusion that when God narrows the family line to the Jews. It is therefore indicative of a God who shows mercy and grace only to a few to the exclusion of everyone else. But what he's really doing is actually showing it doesn't matter what family you were born into. It doesn't even matter what you've done. God's mercy and compassion are for all people. The promise carried by and delivered through the Jewish people is the treasure of the Messiah, the hope of the nations. The Messiah is Jesus. And Jesus would say as he walked this earth, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. And as Paul will write actually in the next chapter, he'll write this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth, uh, sorry, uh, your mouth, sorry, that you testify. Uh, I get mixed up with different translations. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there, there, get this, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And, and, and then get this. We, we, we fast forward to our future, to what we will see one day on that day, where the Apostle John receives a revelation that he records in Revelation chapter 7 when he, he, he gets a glimpse of heaven. And he writes this, what he saw. He says, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Israelites and Palestinians, Russians and Ukrainians. Jesus is the hope for all nations. His mercy and His compassion were designed to bless every nation, not to narrow it just to a few. And while God was selective of one nation in particular, it has always been for the purpose of saving every nation. And it's why Jesus instructs his followers, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to every nation, to the whole of creation. Jesus is the only righteous man who ever lived. He's the only man that was actually good, deserving of the proper birthright died on the cross willingly for any and all who will believe to pay your debt that you could never repay, to be born into a family that you would never be deserving to be born into. And he gives his payment of his blood and of his body to you freely by his mercy and compassion. It doesn't matter what family you were born into, or what wicked things you have done, Jesus is for you. In fact, if you feel especially shameful or dirty, or if you were born into a bad scene and you look through your family line and you just think, ah, my lineage is, is one of dysfunction and chaos and there's blood on my hands and my family members have done terrible things. Even if that's the case, especially if that's the case, Jesus is for you. And he'll reverse all of those ugly things. It's what he does. But if you think you live a pretty good life, that you deserve heaven, 
You are farther away from heaven than you know. To acknowledge the cross is to acknowledge that you are both undeserving and unable to pay your debt, but that the cross is given to those who are deserving and need God to do the miraculous, the impossible, to save a wretch like me. God is here through Christ for all people who are ready to receive his mercy and compassion, to respond to his invitation to any and all who will come. Let them come. See, this church is not a collection of people that have it all together. This church is a collection of people who have tried to do life on their own and have come up short. But God met us in our brokenness. He shone a light on the mercy of his son, the gift of his son, the treasure of his son that we could not see before. And in his son, he forgave us of our sin and he adopted or grafted us into his family and we are now on a lifelong journey of being shaped and healed, broken and put back together, renewed, corrected, guided by his mercy. If you haven't called on Jesus to meet you in your brokenness and save you from yourself, then let today be the day. In fact, when the service is over, we have elders to the left of the stage. They would love to pray with you and lead you in a prayer of your salvation, of confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that he rose from the dead. You will be saved. You will be adopted into his family, made new, made righteous in him. Now we're going to close today with a practice given to us by Jesus through which believers recalibrate their vision of the cross in their lives. We're going to hand out in a minute the bread and the cracker, so the bread and the cracker, uh, which is, uh, represents his body that was broken for us. And we're going to hand out this cup of juice, which represents his blood that was shed for us. And it renews in us our place in this world before him and before one another as undeserving recipients of his mercy and compassion. And how his mercy and compassion, when seen clearly, lead us to repentance, to changing for God.